In the series on the end times, we're laying one of the most important foundations for understanding what will happen in the last days. And remarkable, remarkably, it's this. And as we've started each of these, this is Israel week seven, believe it or not. As we've started each of these, here's your blanks because this is what we're laying, a pervasive prophetic principle. The key to understanding the future of the world is understanding the future of Israel. And then we established a corollary to the principle. Here's your next blanks. The key to understanding the future of Israel is understanding the Old Testament deliverers of Israel. So we looked at Joseph and we saw that he's a remarkable picture of the both first and second coming of Christ. And then we looked at Gideon and the battle of Midian and we found that it's actually a picture of Armageddon and the end of the world. The Valley of Jezreel, which is, Megiddo is right in the middle of it. And that's where Jesus is going to come back to, to fight and win that battle and save Israel. So this evening we turn to another prophetic picture of Christ from the Old Testament. This evening we start with David. And David is so incredible and there's so much to it. It'll be this weekend, next week. And uh, since the prophets repeatedly announced that the Messiah would sit on David's throne you probably won't be surprised that there are direct linkages in the scripture between King David and Jesus. But what you'll probably be surprised about is the number and the specificity of the ways that David was a prophetic foreshadowing of Christ. So as we begin, let's first look at the covenant that God made with David. It's known as the Davidic covenant. Let's pick up where the prophet Nathan is hearing from the Lord the message that he's supposed to speak to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 8. Now, therefore, you shall, Nathan speaking, or God speaking to, to, uh, through Nathan to David, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, it's funny, he wasn't even leading the sheep. He was following the sheep. Isn't that funny for a shepherd? That you, you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been uh, with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a, a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them, uh, as has happened formerly, even from the day that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you the rest of all your enemies. The Lord also desires, uh, de declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. The Lord speaking through Nathan to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. So you see this incredible messianic prophecy now of the future coming kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The fulfillment of this covenant is found in Jesus of Nazareth, of course, the Messiah. And for just one brief moment, the Israelites got this. I've got the one brief moment here in the text. See, they, we, we, they knew the scripture so well that on Palm Sunday, 
at the triumphal entry. They were able to just sing straight really out of the scripture, out of the text, as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Here's what they said. It's in your text. Look at this. Most of the crowds spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Isn't that remarkable? They had put it together for one brief moment. There he is. Of the line of Judah through Jesse, David. Here he is, his son. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the link between David and Christ is explicit. And tonight, as we did with Joseph and Gideon, let's look at the life of David and see how it points to the return of Christ. Since there's so much scripture that covers the life of David, we have to choose somewhere to begin. And where would it be better to begin than in the most famous David story, the story of David and Goliath? So what about the story of David and Goliath points to the second coming? We're not even going to get, turn to 1 Samuel with me, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, we're not even going to, uh, we're just going to do 11. And there are many, many more than that. So look at the first verse of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they gathered in Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul... And the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. So, number one, ready? Here's your blanks. Israel was in big trouble, facing sure defeat at the hands of the mighty Gentile army. And, just as we did with Joseph and Gideon, we're going to go back and forth. And you can see, fortunately, to, to save your wrists, from carpal tunnel syndrome, I've given you the text that flips so you can keep in 1 Samuel. Um, notice, so it shall be at Armageddon, as all of the Gentile armies of the world come to destroy Israel. Here it is from Zechariah 14, speaking of that last day. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken that was taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Israel to battle, surrounded by the Gentile nations, they're in big trouble. Verse 3, chapter 17. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with, with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he also had bronze greaves on his legs, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield-bearer also walked before him. So number two, again, back and forth, we will see how David and Goliath is really about Jesus and the end of the, time, uh, the, end of the world. Number two, the Philistines were led by the greatest warrior on the face of the earth. And so it shall be that the enemies of Israel will be led by the most evil and powerful man in history. The Antichrist will be the most terrifying Goliath of all time. And so notice here comes from the text in Revelation chapter 13. It's in your notes. And the beast 
which I saw was like a leopard. This is the Antichrist. And his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him, the dragon Satan, gave him power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now for number three, look with me. Verse eight, verse eight. And he stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine? Fairly arrogant here. Come back to that. Not, am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me if he is able to fight me and kill me. Then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Parallel number three, here it is, the blanks. The Philistine had great arrogance and defied the army of God. And so it shall be with the Antichrist that he'll be the most arrogant warrior of all time. Look here from the text of Revelation 13 again. And they worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? So you see this huge setup. And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. If, if this is not Goliath all over again, I don't know what is. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. So there's that second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation as Jesus called it. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. Parallel number four, look at verse 11. Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 20. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him and came to the, cycle of the, the uh, circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, verse 23, behold, the champion of the Philistine came from, from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words and David Heard them. Verse 24. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. So number four, here it is. The men of Israel were greatly afraid and they fled from the great Gentile army. And so it shall be with Israel in the last days, terrified as they face sure destruction by the Antichrist and his great armies, they will flee away. Look from Zechariah chapter 14, speaking of that last day, the day of Armageddon. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you, will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Israel to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And you will flee 
by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. They fled from the uh, armies and from Goliath, and they will flee from Antichrist and his armies. Number five, look with me at verse 24 again. Verse 24 again. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from before him and were greatly afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter to take to his father's house and will make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For... Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Number five, here's your blanks. Just when Israel had become so terrified that they began to flee, their deliverer presented himself and stood against the evil armies. And so it shall be at the second coming of Christ that in the midst of all their final retreat, when they're surrounded by innumerable enemies, he will come and deliver them. Look here from Zechariah chapter 12. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Number six, look at verse 46. Verse 46, this day, the Lord will deliver you, David speaking, to Goliath will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines and the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky, the wild beasts, the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Number six, you ready? God's deliverance of his people. Here's your blanks. God's deliverance of his people through David testified to the whole earth that the God of Israel alone is God. And so it shall be at the end of history. Look here from Ezekiel 38, speaking of that day. In my zeal and my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, and I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Look at these perfect and precise parallels, really the same phrases even very often. Number seven, look at verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron and slain Philistines lay along the way of Sherim, even to Gath and Ekron. Here it is. Number seven. Here's your blanks. David led the destruction of the armies that came against Israel. And so it shall be that Christ will destroy all of those who, all those who come against Israel on the day of his return. Look from Revelation chapter 19. Watch this parallel. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their 
armies assembled to make war against him, Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. Look at this. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. Number eight, look back at verse 46 again with me. Back at verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky. Number eight, write it in. Birds ate the flesh of the fallen foes of Israel. Birds ate the flesh of the fallen foes of Israel. And so it shall be with the foes of Israel at Armageddon. Look again from chapter 19 of Revelation. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly into the midheaven, Come, assemble the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of all men. As the birds ate the enemy's dead bodies that day with uh, Goliath and the Philistines, so it shall be at Armageddon. Number nine, look at verse 49. The end of a paragraph there. And David put his hand to his bag took from it a stone and a sling and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Number nine, here's your blanks. Israel's deliverer cast the mighty warrior down from his place of taunting and arrogant accusation and so it shall be at Christ's return. The mighty dragon who taunts and accuses God's people will be cast down. Look at this from Revelation chapter 12. And the great dragon, this is the, this is the devil himself. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for... The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Look at this. Three times has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. As Israel's deliverer cast down the Goliath, Israel's soon coming great deliverer will cast down the Goliath. Number 10. Let me start this with a question. How did David kill Goliath? Well, this is like one of the most famous stories. Everybody knows how David killed Goliath, right? Look at verse 48 again with me. Verse 48. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand to his bag, took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead and the stone sunk into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50, thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was, a, there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him. So with what did David kill Goliath? 
not a sling and a stone. He actually killed Goliath when you look at the details with, you ready? A sword. He killed Goliath actually with a sword. And what will Jesus use to destroy the armies of Antichrist at Armageddon? Guess what? Look at this from chapter 19 of Revelation. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are di many diadems and his name is written on, on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he might strike down the nations. Aren't these parallels absolutely remarkable? Number 11, and we're going to go to application quickly tonight because the, the application is really the heart of these, but without understanding how amazingly typical foreshadowing, how amazingly this is a detailed picture, you miss the fact that David and Goliath are really about Jesus and Antichrist. So look with me at verse 16. Back to verse 16, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 16. And the Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. This is when David is still back at his house. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of his roasted grain, then these ten loaves, and run to the camp to your brothers. Ready? Number 11. He went to the battle. Ready? He went to the battle when his father sent him. That's right. David went to fight Goliath and the army when his father told him to go. And so it will be with Jesus. Here it is, the text from Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The Father has fixed a day. There'll be a day when the Father says, Jesus Go back and save Israel and go back and save all who follow me. Go back and set everything right. So just like David, Jesus will come to fight the great Goliath exactly when his father sends him to the battle. So let's apply. Let's apply. Here's your blanks in the application for tonight. Exactly as with David, when Christ comes, nobody will be expecting him. Exactly as David, as with David, when Christ comes, nobody will be expecting him. Now we're still in uh, chapter 17. Look at verse 20 again with me. Verse 20 again. So David arose early in the morning and left his flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went with, with uh, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. And it's a fascinating interaction here. Here's where you get the, hey, who is he to taunt the armies of the living God? He's so offended that this 
man would taunt his, his mighty God, even though he's this little boy, the eighth of eighth, the small one, the little tiny one, the one who wasn't even a shepherd that led his flock. It said he was following the sheep, this pathetic little guy. And so look at his oldest brother, Eliab. Look at his response when David shows up at the battle. Look with me at verse 28. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said to him, Why have you come down? Look at that. Why have you come down? Why would you be here? You pathetic little meek nobody. Why would you be here? So notice, no one expected David to show up, not even his own brother. And so it shall be that the exalted Christ will surprise the whole world. No longer the meek little baby. No longer the one who could so easily bleed to death and die on a cross. No longer that one. Now the lion. And think about where we stand today. Our world flippantly makes light of the Lord's promised coming. But the word teaches that they'll be very surprised on the day when he comes. And now turn with me to the text in Matthew chapter 24. And you should be very good at finding Matthew chapter 24 by now, because this is the anchor. How can you, how can you not have your eschatology anchored in the great Olivet Discourse where Jesus preaches about his own coming? And look at this amazing text here, <clears throat> verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. This is, if you look at 2 Peter 3, you get this same thing. What is this promise of this coming? What is this? For ever since the beginning of time, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. Everybody has said this is going to happen. It's never going to happen. That attitude of the days of Noah, there it is. Look at this, 4, verse 38. For as those days were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Nobody will be expecting him the day Jesus shows up. Now, several issues flow from this text. Here's your blanks. Number one, issue number one. The world really doesn't believe that Jesus is coming back. We have parties. We you know, live, live like you want to. We're marrying and giving her marriage. Or don't worry about marriage. It doesn't matter. None of this. Hey, and besides, all these Looney Tunes that all through the ages have said that this Jesus is coming back and he's going to come judge the world. It's that, that silly part of the Apostles' Creed that says he's coming to judge the living and the dead. All of those things. How silly. How ridiculous. And So it shouldn't surprise anyone that knows the word that the world will be surprised just like even his brothers were surprised when David showed up at the battle. They don't believe Jesus who he, was, who he said he was when he came the first time. So they certainly have no reason to believe that Jesus is returning. Issue number two, here's your blanks. The church doesn't act like we believe he's coming back either. The church doesn't act like we believe he's coming back either. The surveys in the church are amazing. 
One survey evaluated over 1,000 people who call themselves born-again Christians. They checked off the boxes that are typically associated with being a follower of Christ. And here are the survey results. You ready to write this in? This is staggering. Among Christians, 32% said they believe that Jesus is coming back ever. Did you get that? A thousand American adult believers, 32% said they believe that Jesus is coming back ever. Issue number three, here's your blanks. Despite our slumber, boy, is that slumber. Only 32% even believe he's coming, let alone really paying attention, rather than really living as if that's our blessed hope the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number three, despite our slumber, this generation should be particularly prepared for the soon return of Messiah. Let me say that again. Despite our slumber, this, gen this generation should be particularly prepared for the soon return of Christ, and you're going to see why. So, so why in our generation particularly? And to answer this, I'd like us to pay attention to some biblical symbolism from Matthew that gives us a lot of information about how close we are to Christ's return. Let's look at a section of the text where Jesus is scolding the Jewish leaders of his day. Look at uh, just a back a couple of chapters, three chapters to chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 17. Matthew 21 Verse 17, and he left and he went out of the city to Beth Bethany. Okay, so this is now he's in Passion Week. He's going into Jerusalem and teaching and doing stuff during the day. And then he's leaving, uh, going away at night. And he left them and went on this, uh, uh, out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now in the morning, when he returned to the city, he became hungry. You know what? I'm sorry. I need to come back to this because first you need to see verse 42 and verse 43. We'll come back to this. Jesus said to them, he's now speaking, Jesus speaking to the, to the leaders. Jesus said to them, verse 42, do you ever read this, never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Of course, talking about himself. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing fruit. Isn't that amazing? Speaking to the Jewish leaders, because you have not, you've rejected the chief cornerstone, because you've rejected your own Messiah, this is going to be taken away from you. So right, uh, uh, notice here, the, the event uh, from the, uh, who in the, uh, here's, your, here's your blank, who was in the, fruit, uh, the fruitless nation from whom the kingdom was taken? And the answer is, here's your blank, Israel. Now let's look at an event in the same chapter that happened immediately after the triumphal entry. And it highlights the horrible state of unbelieving Israel and what will happen to them because of their rejection of the Messiah. Now back to verse 17 where I started before. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and lodged there. This is right after the triumphal entry. It's that day, Sunday. Verse 18, now in the morning when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it. See the fruitlessness 
a fig tree without the fruit, found nothing on it except leaves only, and he said to it, no longer shall there be ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. So in this event, who does the fig tree represent? Here's your blank. Israel. This, they're supposed to be bearing the fruit. They're supposed to have accepted their Messiah and meant it and now be a part of helping him save his world. Um, now let's look at another fig tree passage that's about Israel. Back to the Olivet Discourse. And now you may remember the linkage. Now we're back to another fig tree story, right? We've just seen how Israel has rejected and so God is going to give the kingdom and its workings to another nation, the Gentiles really. And then we see that the fig tree is fruitless. And this fruitless fig tree just withers supernaturally, boom, just like that. So now look in verse 29 of Matthew 24 in the middle of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 29 in chapter 24, uh, verse 29. Look at, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Verse 31, and he said, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Watch this. Now, we've just heard this incredible glorious appearing. Jesus talking about himself coming in the clouds and gathering the, the elect from all over the earth. And look at this now. Learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So, when did the fig tree, when did Israel blossom? When did it bloom? Write it in, 1948, when they became a nation once again. And what did Jesus prophesy about the fig tree? Look now carefully with me back at verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, when you see Israel come back into the land and become a nation, when the fig tree blossoms, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You ready? Here's your blanks. What did Jesus prophesy about the fig tree? Write it in. Jesus will return in the generation that follows the blossoming of the fig tree. Jesus will return in the generation that follows the blossoming of the fig tree. Now this passage and its implications have had interpretations that have been all over the map. So I want us to spend some time looking at what the fig tree generation actually means. The fig tree passage makes several key points. Here's your blanks. Fig tree point number one, a biblical generation is not necessarily 40 years. See, until 19, from 1948, 
people, this, this, uh, this style of, hey, you know, it was like Saul was 40 years to David and David was 40 years to Solomon. Solomon was 40 years until Rehoboam. Uh, you know, a generation is 40 years. That, that got, so until 1988, many people said that the biblical generation is 40 years and that the fig tree prophecy meant that Jesus was coming back no later than 1988. In fact, some of you may have heard of the book, 88 Reasons Why Christ, Christ Will Return in 1988. He had him come in on the Feast of Trumpets in September of 1988. In fact, if you Google it, uh, I'm sure you could get a, cop a used copy of it now if you wanted to. The problem with this 40-year rule has always been that the Scripture never specifies a number of years that defines a generation. It was made up, basically. In biblical history, there were generations that were as short as 12 to 15 years when some people literally married as children in those days and had children. And a generation can also be as long as 500 years in Noah's situation. Thus, forcing a 40-year generation into the text, at, uh, as some have used to do, has now been shown that it's wrong. It wasn't 40 years from 1948, Jesus had to come back. We're far beyond that now. And as always, since there were bozos who tried to make too much of this prophecy's ability to pinpoint the time of Christ's return, when 1988 came and went, there were many disillusioned people. Yeah, right. One more date setting that came and went, blah, blah, blah. Jesus isn't coming back. It's been 2,000 years he would have come if he was going to come. And this creates a problem causing many people to throw out the whole fig tree prophecy uh, kind of just throw it out. It obviously doesn't mean what it says. But this prophecy actually is an important one, and we'll look at its meaning in fig tree point number two. Fig tree point number two. Here's the, here's the blanks. The Greek term for generation can also mean age. The Greek term for generation can also mean age. So, an and age. Um, so the fig tree prophecy means that after Israel became a nation again in 1948, the world entered into the final generation, the final age, the perfect setup. And this means that there's nothing else that must be fulfilled before Christ comes back. Nothing else has to be fulfilled for Jesus to return. He could return at any moment. We have the incredible privilege of living in the fig tree generation, the fig tree age. So Christ's return is imminent. Christ can come back at any moment. This is what the fig tree prophecy means. It doesn't uh, let us put a deadline on Christ's return, but it does tell us that the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 were spoken directly to us in this day. Listen to them again. When you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Fig tree point number three, write it in. God carefully guards against even the slightest possibility that anyone can know the day of Christ's return. Let me say that again. God carefully guards against even the slightest possibility that anyone can know the day 
of Christ's return. Now tonight, we've already heard Jesus explicitly state the precept that no one will ever be able to know when he will return. Listen to the words again. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. To make this point even more clear, after the resurrection, Jesus reminded the disciples of the impossibility of knowing when he would return. In fact, he said it really bluntly, almost obnoxiously. When they asked when he would come to set up his eternal kingdom, he basically said to them, it's none of your business. Look at the text in your notes from Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Look at his blunt response. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So no one will ever be able to predict when Jesus will come back. Not even the actual apostles themselves could know. In fact, Jesus said that he didn't even know. But God takes this point even farther, and we'll see this in fig tree point number four. Here's your blanks. The reason prophecy is cryptic, the reason prophecy is cryptic is because God doesn't allow himself to be constrained even by his own word. This is an important, classic, theological understanding. The reason prophecy is cryptic is because God doesn't allow himself to be constrained even by his own word. Now, when you first hear that, you might be thinking, wait a second, doesn't, doesn't God keep his word? Doesn't he follow his word? Listen very carefully. This is an incredibly important concept. God's word is absolutely perfect and absolutely reliable. But God's word is not sovereign. God alone is sovereign. And he isn't constrained by anything, not even his word. Remember, the word isn't a set of precepts that exist unto themselves. The word is incarnate. Incarnate God. The Word is a reflection of who God is. So, God isn't constrained by His Word. In fact, it's actually the other way around. And again, this is classic Christian understanding. The Word is constrained by the sovereignty of God and God's will, not the other way around. So, let's use tonight's topic to illustrate this. Later in this end time series, we're going to specifically deal with the issue of date setting. Date setting is the common practice of prophets, so-called pseudo-prophets, that use the scripture to predict when Christ will return. If you just Google when, will, when has Christ been predicted to return, you can look at the next 30 that'll be saying. Some of them are more famous than others, but it's out there all the time. Um, and... Um, but tonight, I'm just going to deal with one aspect of this issue. We'll do an entire mini-series on the issues, the problems, and the, some of the spectacular uh, tragedies that have happened uh, from, from date setting historically. Um, tonight, we're going to just uh, deal with one aspect. Um, think about it this way. On the one hand, God couldn't make it any clearer that we can't know the day of Christ's return. He, he couldn't say it any more clearly, right? 
But on the other hand, he's given us some amazing prophecies to let us know that the day is getting very close. Got that? So this creates a tension. We can't know the day, but we know a lot about when it is approaching. Two things are true at the same time. We know a lot, and there's a lot we don't know. <laughs> and to help us have a proper biblical balance regarding the tension between what we can know and what we can't know, let's recall the prophecy that we looked at in Thursology 37, six weeks ago. If you haven't gotten to it yet in your review, I would strongly I would t have you go there. It is one of the two greatest timing prophecies that have been fulfilled in Scripture in all of the Word. It is utterly spectacular, right? It was the regarding the regathering of Israel into the land and making them into a nation again. And this is utterly astonishing where uh, linking Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Leviticus, after all is said and done, Ezekiel prophesied that Israel would be regathered into the promised land and regain the station, the statu uh, status as a nation in the year 1948. He, hailed, uh, excuse me, he nailed it right on the button perfectly after two and a half thousand years. Ezekiel nails it, 1948. But here's a key about prophecy that often gets missed. Despite the spectacular and irrefutable nature of the 1948 prophecy, again, go to the details if you haven't been in uh, Thursology 37. Um, there would have been no way to understand this prophecy with absolute uh, assurance in advance. Think about that. Now in retrospect, knowing 1948 happened, we can see how flawlessly and perfectly God announces his sovereignty this spectacularly over history. But in advance, they might have been able to say, wow, maybe this all fits together. But they could not have known it with absolute assurance in advance. And let me explain why this matters. For us, living in the generation following the fulfillment of Israel regaining national status and knowing the exact year that the event happened, we're in a position to show God's control over history by unpacking the actual fulfilled dates from this prophecy. But before 1948, before it was actually fulfilled in history, the prophecy was just nonspecific enough so that no one could say, let's say in the 17th century, no one could say that this prophecy was, was, was such that Israel couldn't become a nation until 1948. Got that? In retrospect, we can see how perfectly 1948 was prophesied. But if you go before 1948, there would have been no one who could say, well, Israel can't become, uh, become a nation until 1948. They couldn't know this for sure in advance of the prophecy. And let me show what I mean, because, uh, again, some of you uh, think and, and uh, uh, more, more easily, and I often do too, graphically. So think about history as it was unfolding. Here's the Babylonian exile back in 536. And remember that actually picks from there, actually you, we can see now that Ezekiel actually prophesied exactly 1948 when the nation would come to back, back together. But here's the ascension where Jesus, uh, where you hear from the angels 
saying, just as he left and ascended to the Father, so shall he return from the clouds. Right? So here's the Jesus, here starts the clock from the ascension that Jesus is going to come back sometime. And interestingly enough, let's start writing this in. We know that the fig tree bloomed in 1948. So go ahead and fill in your blanks there. In 1948, Israel bloomed. We know that. We now understand the fig tree prophecy. Okay? And think about what that means from the Olivet Discourse. Once the fig tree bloomed, it means Christ, here's your blank, Christ is right, this is right out of the Olivet Discourse. Christ is right at the door. Ever since Israel's back in the land, Christ is back, uh, Christ is right at the door. This age, this generation, this post-Israel becoming a nation time in history, Christ is right at the door. And here's Christ's return is imminent. I I M I M M I N E N T. Okay, so look at this. Here's the beginning of Ezekiel's prophecy, nailed it in 1948. We now know it's true. Here's when Jesus, the clock for Jesus' return started in 32 AD at his ascension. And we know from this time Christ is right at the door, Christ's return is imminent. And notice this. Does that mean that literally Christ can't, here's your last blank, Christ can't return? Could the church have taught in the 16th century, the 4th century, the 13th century? Well, Jesus can't come back yet because Israel hasn't become a nation again. That would have constrained imminency all through here, but we know the church has always taught Jesus can return at any moment. So notice, Jesus could have come back if the Father had fixed it sometime in the 15th century. And notice, because the fig tree, um, uh, the fig tree generation, which we now fully understand in history, because that is given in figurative language, Jesus could have come back. The church should have been expecting him to come back because there was just enough about it that didn't clarify and make it very clear. So that's why the church in the 11th century wasn't saying, well, we're waiting, waiting for Israel to be a nation. We're waiting for Israel to come back into the promised land. No, guess what the church in the 11th century was waiting for? They were waiting for the very same thing that Paul was waiting for. And all the Thessalonians were waiting for when Paul said, hey, I don't want you to be uninformed that some have fallen asleep, some have died, because they all thought Jesus was going to come back and imminently, right away. So, here's the key concept. Write it in, your last blanks. Christ could have returned before 1948 without contradicting any biblical prophecy because all of these prophecies are given in symbolic language. Now, let this start soaking in. This is why biblical prophecy never says anything like this. <laughs> let me... Let me tell you what Jesus could have said, because the Father could have told him, and he could have said this, and this could have been in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. But the scripture never says anything like this. The Son of God will return to the earth at his second coming on September 28th in the year 2027. Scripture never says things like that, right? Matthew 24 could have said this. God could have said when he has fixed the day if he wanted to. So think about this. God certainly 
could have put the exact day of Christ's return in the Word. So why didn't he? Why would he leave the most important future event in human history not specified in the Word? And the answer is because if he had told us that Jesus was coming back in 2027 or whenever, then what would 2,000 years of Christians have done? We would have sat around on our duff saying, well, Jesus isn't coming back for a number, X number of years, so we can just kick back and relax. There's no urgency. There's no imminency. There's no reason to get all hot and bothered about being ready because we've got years to get ready for Jesus to return. So because of the nature of biblical prophecy from the church's perspective, all through the centuries, Christ's return has always been imminent. It's only now, in retrospect, that our generation can realize that Christ was waiting for the regathering of Israel before he could come back. Only in retrospect do we know that he couldn't come back during those days. Before that, there would have been no way to be sure that all of these prophecies fit together just this way. And that so the church has always taught rightly that Jesus can come back at any moment. It was only from God's perspective that Jesus couldn't come back during all the centuries before 1948. But this should bring great pause to us. Stop for a moment now, because here's where we end. We're a very privileged generation. Listen, church, we know what millions of believers throughout history never had the privilege of knowing during their lifetimes. We've gotten to see the blossoming of the fig tree in our own eyes. If you want to see how dramatic it is, just Google Israel, national Israel, what's going on in Israel. And there it is, the nation of God's people back in the land. We've seen it with our own eyes. And because of this, the soon return of Jesus should ever be on our minds. We should be living every day with the clear expectation that Jesus, how did he say it? Jesus is right at the door. The Father is right there. Son, get right at the door. Israel is back in the land. Son, and it's going to happen in an instant when the father's going to say, now son, go back and set everything right. He's right at the door. So the way I'd like to finish tonight <coughs> is <clears throat> just to let the word speak for itself. And as we read the words from the Olivet Discourse, just let them soak in. And let's allow them to change us into Christ followers who look for Jesus to return every day. Look with me at verse 32 in Matthew 24. Just read this with me and just let this soak in and listen to the amazing statements from our Lord. Now learn the parable of the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all of these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation 
will not pass away until all these things take place. And now he punctuates that by this amazing statement. Look at this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the man, now he starts the warnings. The coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Is this not today's slumber even in the church. Verse 39, And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then, look what's going to happen. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. How amazing is that? What? They're just at a regular day of work and done. One is gone. Verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. Just a regular old day. Jesus is never coming. It's just like any other day. We're just going to work. Jesus couldn't come. Verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, 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 be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time the night thief was coming, he, wouldn't, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. That's how we fit today, tonight together. It's why the title says a thief in the night. They didn't expect little David to show up. And unfortunately, much of the church isn't expecting Jesus to show up either. The great deliverer, the great king is coming back. Four, verse 44, for the reason, this reason you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an t- hour when you do not think he will. You ready for this? If you don't think Jesus could come tonight, it's a perfect time for him to come. Because he's already told us that he's going to come back when we don't think he will. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and sensible slave who his master has put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possession. But if the evil slave says in his heart, you ready? Listen, how many times have I thought this? My master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth. I just want to finish with verse 42 through 44 again. Listen. Read, therefore, be on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will will.